Thank you, Jim. And seated in the studio at what is an ungodly hour for a magnificent evening of theater, following the evening of theater, last night's opening of the Cherry Orchard of the National Theaters of Great Britain, uh, Ian McKellen playing the role of Lepak, and Ian McKellen, who some would say is the finest today, the finest actor on English-speaking stage, a member of the National Company of Great Britain that you opened with the Duchess of Malfi and now Chekhov's classic, The Cherry Orchard. They got rave reviews. And I realize you're here this morning. You can hardly keep your eyes open. <laughs> and yet I know the, the thoughts are there. And so as you have the coffee, I should point out to the audience that often following opening night, there is a gathering. The actors get together, have a little celebration. And so with an hour or so of sleep and a matinee forthcoming, We'll make this as easy as possible for you and Good McCall. morning to you. Good How morning, are you? Sir. Well, I hear I, I've got two pairs of glasses here. I don't know quite which to wear because I, I, I've got these sunglasses, but they don't really fit me. But the light in here isn't too bright. Beautiful, I, beautiful I was outside thinking, this morning, isn't it? I, I was thinking just to start things easily, rather than talk about Ian McKellen's one-man performance of Shakespeare will come to that, I hope, and I know he will. Last night's performance, both the critics of both Metropolitan Papers raved. One called it stunning, and the other spoke of the graceful quality of your performances and that of your colleagues. And uh, One spoke of the joy and the sorrow of Chekhov's drama, Sing. And how this particular production, Mike Alfred's direction, came about would be interesting. Well, it's, it's, it's the right show to bring to Chicago because... Um, it is not the sort of production which is imposed by the director. It's, it's not a director meeting a group of actors and s telling them that he knows what the play is about. It's not the sort of production which um, presumes on the play. Uh, rather, it's the sort of event in which the play emerges for the audience's delectation. It's not a production with um, a point of view. Um, which it rams down the audience's throat. Rather, it encourages the audience to examine what they're hopefully enjoying and make up their own minds to, that they should be the interpreter and not the actors and the director. And this is achieved through what, for me, has been an absolutely astonishing experience. Um, because after 25 years of um, working in the British theatre, I found a director who... Uh, answers for me all the problems of acting. And one of the big problems of acting is uh, how do you do it night after night after night? Now, people are always asking me that, and I'm always rather poo-poo it and say, don't you realise that the audience is different every night? And so, although I'm saying the same words, it's kept fresh by that. But I've never totally believed that in my heart of hearts. Uh, what Mike Alfreds does is say, make it different every night. Not because you have to, but because you will want to as you respond to the audience. We won't um, decide where anyone is going to move on the stage. And we, we haven't done. And each move in Cherry Orchard is genuinely improvised each uh, performance. Um, I'm never quite sure when, when I, I'm going to get on that bench in Act 2 or not. Because all the knobs are sitting down, perhaps the little peasant boy in parking is going to have to stand up tonight, or sit on the ground, or sit next to Varya, or tonight I may be next to Ranivsky, or next to Gaev. It doesn't matter, because as long as I know my character, yeah. and they know theirs, and we know the words we're speaking, we don't improvise the words, then the story is going to come zinging through. And I think that's what happened last night. It just seemed to take off. Now, tonight, you see, there's something 
what you're saying here. It is not, the business isn't pointed out step by step, inch by inch. You must do exactly the same four steps. No. no precisely the opposite. The character is there. That's right. And that same, the pocket, you, the peasant becomes the landowner, a very sensitive guy who feels also poignance. He knows it's the end of a of an epoch for the madam who's selling mm. the house to you, mm. has to. Mm. He's that guy. You know him. Oh, yeah, I know him, yes. Yeah. But um, whether tonight he'll be a little bit coarser than he was last night, or maybe a bit more elegant in his uh, attempt to um, impress this beautiful lady who he's besotted with, whether tonight he will be a little less in love with Sky than he was last night, I don't know. And um, I shall only know when I walk onto the stage with my intentions um, hopefully pulled together by that time, two o'clock this afternoon, um, and meet the other actors and meet their intentions and their level of energy. And really, it's just like life. I was going to say, <laughs> this is Chekhov again. It's more like life than it's yeah. like a play. Yeah. And it's a joy. And and. In London, we do this play in a very small theatre, 200 seats. The audience right on top of the actors. And, of course, at the Blackstone, there's room for 1,400. And uh, there's a big area there to be filled, and uh, the performances had to be magnified for that space. But what was encouraging was that it didn't seem to matter. Uh, it just it just happened. But if, if we'd been stuck with a very rigid production, I think we might have been in problems last night, and, and we weren't. Ah, now here's something else. Because you, you're Lepak, and, and Sheila Hancock knows Madame Ronyovskaya very well, and the various other colleagues know yes. their characters well, the student and yeah. and the plain woman who's in love with you, Eleanor plays. Valia. Because you all know each other. The role you are very well. It's a big theater or a small theater. You easily adjust, you know. And it's not you the four steps. You're not going to sit on the sofa. You may not. No. But it's the same guy. Same Just guy. as that, you have a little, you have a few drinks here. You may have an extra drink in your character, that is. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little more drunk mm -hmm. slightly and a little more coarse as That's a result. Right. That's right. But, but same guy. Absolutely. The same guy. So um, it's, it would be possible perhaps, for an audience to come and see this eight shows on the trot, you know, and find something different in it each time. I don't know what, what's the interesting puzzle as to whether the actors would actually be presenting eight different aspects of the play or whether just you arriving eight different times in the theatre would provide that different uh, yeah. point of view which would make it seem to you that you've got eight different interpretations. I don't know. Well, that's a mystery. I, to I'm me. just wondering the history of Chekhov, say, and the Moscow Art Theater, when Stanislavski was directing it and when it was first done, whether he didn't use that same approach. Well, I'm sure they did in rehearsal. Well, it's very likely that um, in rehearsal, after all, Stanislavski was dealing with, <clears throat> in the main, amateur actors. You know, they were they were um, rather well heeled. Uh, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. Who uh, had a, an amateur company that he and his uh, partner, Danchenko, um, turned professional and made a big success of in Moscow. And I think what they weren't frightfully good at was playing lower life characters. They weren't uh, badly off at the ladies and gentlemen. For instance, uh, Chekhov said, sent uh, the cherry orchard to uh, 
Stanislavski, whose family was um, very famous in Moscow, and an, an industrial family with a lot of money, and said to Stanislavski, I've written you a wonderful part, Lepakin, the peasant. And Stanislavski said, no, no, thank you very much. I'll play Gaev, the elder brother, who, of course, is the landowner and <laughs> has a certain style and elegance to him. Uh, but I, I think perhaps to encourage um, their actors to get into the life of, um, say, the Gorky characters that they were playing, they must have done improvisations of some sort. But Lower I depth, say. That's right, lower depth. But when it came to the performance, I, I, I would guess that it was well regulated mm. by Stanislavski. And, so uh, what your company... That, Sorry. You and Mike Alfred and the others have done is something really daring. Well, it it it, it, it is for someone like me who's uh, spent his life working in one way to suddenly meet a, a, a director who encourages me to be very free, uh, to not worry about anything, to uh, just uh, feel in the moment. <clears throat> and what's good about uh, good about it is that. Uh, it reinforces what I've always known as an actor, that the theatre is special because it's happening now. Yeah. It happened last night. Yeah. It's going to happen this afternoon. It's there again, this uh, last it, time on, this is the thing you talked about too, the immediacy. That's right. Of that moment, once gone, is gone. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is not the identical chapter verse, well, chapter verse, but not the identical step-by-step -step performance mm. because we're each of us in life is different hmm. from one night to the person is there. Yeah. So a little more tired, a little more aggressive one yes. night. It's it's. I suppose for for someone who's not an actor, you should think of that that favorite story that you have that that that, that you tell uh, something that happened to you, and uh, it happened and it was real and it had an immediate impact, and. That evening, you tell somebody about it. You tell your wife, your boyfriend. And then the next day, you tell them at work. And then you tell someone the same story on the telephone. Yeah. It's not the same words. Oh, never. It's the same experience you're remembering. And sometimes, of course, it gets a bit exaggerated. I'm going to try. And sometimes you forget little bits of it, but it's basically there. And it's still you telling the story. I'm going to try telling an experiment with you right now. May I do this? Sure. It's a self-indulgence on my part. Good. The very point of telling a story. Uh, Nelson Algren, one of my favorite writers, wrote about Chicago, The Bard, used to write stories and it was very funny. And one day he's telling a story of Diaghilev and Nijinsky, and he deliberately twists it. He makes uh, Nijinsky in love with Diaghilev rather the other way around. And so it's a bad moment for both, and Nijinsky wants to impress the maestro, the man he loves. And so he leaps into the air and does something no human being ever did. Now it's me telling the story that I'd read in a Nelson Algren yes. book. You must remember that yes, part. Yes. And Nijinsky leaps into the air and does a tourja. <clears throat> what's French for ten? He does ten twirls De in the air. Tourja huh? dis. No one ever did that. And lands on point. Incredible. And he's breathing rather heavily and says to Diaghilev, Master, He's, what took you so long? And so now he's got to impress this man he loves. So he <laughs> hops into the air and he levitates. No human has ever levitated. Fake magicians do it, but never really. And he lands on point. Now his breath is even shorter. He says, Master, no human's ever done that. He says, 
Where the hell have you been, says Tiago. He says, my God, now Najinsky is desperate. He flies into the air and disappears. No bird ever did that. He lands somewhere in the wings against that bar, and now he's crawling on his knees. He's so tired, he's so exhausted. And he comes up to Tiago and says, Master, he says, what are you on, the WPA? Yes, are you on welfare or something? What am I paying you for, loafing? He's finally, what do you want of me, Master, he says in desperate. Etenamwa, says Diaghilev, astonish me. And so Nijinsky takes a dead mackerel from his back pocket, a dead fish, and he slaps Diaghilev across the mouth of the dead fish. And Diaghilev says, oh, my God, you astonished me. This is great. And then a light bulb lights up above his head. He's got this grand idea. Here we are. Here we are, the ballet ruse performing with the crowned heads of Europe, the four industrialists of Europe, and queens and princesses, and self-indulgent, slovenly people who don't, never lifted a, never did a day's work in their lives. Sure, we got Stravinsky, and we got Picasso and Brock doing the sets. But what do you say we reach the mujiks of the world, everybody? This act. You and me do this act. You do your act. And then you say, what do you want of me? And I say, a ton of them and smack me in the mouth with a fish. We'll kill them. And so they play all over the world, port cities only, because they've got a fresh fish. You know? And so they kill them in, in Odessa. People, Mujik, pay thousands of rubles to see it. They kill them in Liverpool and Bristol, and these old cloth cap dock hands up paying all the pounds they got to see this act. They're going crazy. In the meantime, Diaghilev and Jinsky are putting on fright wigs and putty noses and baggy pants. A Tanama, bang, and the crowd goes crazy all over the world. Now it's somewhere, it might have been in Shanghai. Diaghilev is getting tired. He says, I'm getting tired of picking these mackerel bones out from between my teeth. He says, why do you say we use a foam rubber fish next time? And Najinsky, now the star, says, how dare you? I'm an artiste. It's got to be the real thing or nothing. And Diaghilev says, okay, from now on in we switch roles. You say a Tanama. And I smack you in the mouth with a dead fish. And the act broke up then and there. And the moral of Nelson Logan's story is, art depends on who is hitting who in the mouth with a dead fish. <laughs> now, that's the story. And I tell it, and you laugh, and it's good. And I read it again. It's a wholly different story. And so in the telling of it, yes. repeat it again, it becomes something different. Is, this is what you're talking about. Absolutely. And that's, and that's what it's like to... Um to do Cherry Orchard night after night. It, it is the same. It is the yeah. same story, but it's a little bit different That's because right. it's a retelling for a new bunch of people who are hearing it for the first time or maybe so for the it's, same it's time. So these actors, and by the way, what an ensemble of actors they are of the uh, National Theatre of Great Britain, it's the ensemble. They are telling a story every night, the same story, but the nuances, the colouring is all different. That's so right. the audience sees it afresh each night which is what you say theater is about. Yes, it's, it, it, it makes sense to me. Let me just pause for now because as you have another sip of your coffee and you're getting slightly more awake and you've been pretty exciting, <laughs> even, even half Well, I hope you're going to tell exciting. me more stories. That was a wonderful and, bit you know, of stories. We've got to hear your... we come to something else now, okay. another aspect of Ian McKellen, a very stunning aspect, after Mel Zellman of this message. There's a matinee today at... Uh, 2.30? At 2. I think I at think 2. A matinee at 2. Even I'll, I'll go in to do it at 2, and so if it's at 2.30, at, I'll still be there. At yeah. the Blackstone Theatre, and it's the Cherry Orchard, and it's stunning as the word, and terribly exciting theatres. You can gather from listening to Ian McKellen talk. Think about the different 
dimensions to your acting and directing as well. Many people know of you, of course, as, as Salieri, and again, stunning is the word. You won every award for that in uh, Amadeus, the New York production. But it's your Shakespeare, too, aside from Chekhov and Marlowe and Congreve, your Shakespeare. And your one person Shakespeare interpretation mm. that's been on TV. And that, yes. that, that is actually positively uh, you know, revelation. Well, I don't. That, I just hit a, a lucky chord there. It was, um, it was a show I put together when I was working at Stratford upon Avon. You know where Shakespeare was born and where he died, and and where the Royal Shakespeare Company have three theatres. They're just opening a new theatre this year. Um, all of them built with American money. You know, the uh, British so proud of their theatre, but it's the Americans who actually put up the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford. Anyway, there I was working away, and I was invited to go up to the Edinburgh Festival, on which perhaps your Chicago International Theatre Festival is in part based. And uh, they said, would I do a one-man show? And uh, because my mind was full of Shakespeare, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll try and um, chatter on for two hours in front of a hopefully fairly indulgent audience about why I like Shakespeare, not not what Shakespeare is to the academics or to the um, to the intelligent person necessarily, but just to a working actor who knows that Shakespeare was a brilliant playwright and a brilliant man of the theatre and try and um, explain why I feel so fond of, of the man who it keeps being revealed to me through the plays. I mean, a, a, a man, a superhuman, but uh, nevertheless, um, someone who you can feel contact with. And, and that, that's how the show arose, and, and um, it, it developed over a number of years and ended up on Broadway. Uh, it even went to L.A. I don't know whether anyone's ever done a one-man Shakespeare show in L.A. Hmm. before, but uh, it's, wherever I go with it, there are people who just love it. doesn't matter where well, I go I in the world. I think some of the characters, we know that you've done Macbeth, you won every award there is. Macbeth and, let's say Macbeth and Coriolanus. Here are two powerful men, two men in power, I should say. If there's a common denominator, the word would be power, quest, one way or oh. the other, or rejection. Yes. Start with them, say. <coughs> well, I don't know. It's, um, there are many, many, many problems about doing Shakespeare. And, uh, one is getting in touch with the language, which, of course, is not modern-day language. Um, it's, it's usually more simple than it looks on the page. Once you speak Shakespeare, it, 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 um, it comes alive. But um, perhaps the, big, the biggest problem is not, and there's not that, because that's a collective problem that the director and all the actors are working on together. It's something you can train yourself to do. You've just got to sit down with a paper and with a pencil and start marking the script and understanding how the rhythm goes and all that sort of thing and take that into account when you're performing. No, what's more difficult, perhaps, than that is utterly believing that Macbeth ever existed. I mean, how could that man exist? Um, the, um, at some point in the play, you know, the, the absolute essence of uh, evil or of human frailty and self-disgust and whatever it is that finally makes the man able to say tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow 
creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Um, and what I try and do when I'm playing these gigantic characters who other actors have played in the past and had enormous success with is, is just try and think, is there anybody alive today in 1986? Not in 1604 when it was written, but is there anybody today, in my experience, a friend of mine, someone in the newspaper, who has elements of Macbeth? Because if there is, then I, I know that person existed, that modern person, and if I believe he exists, then I can believe that Macbeth exists, and therefore I can make him exist through me. So Macbeth, when we were doing Macbeth, I suddenly said, had the very, not very original idea, that of course Macbeth was Richard Nixon. It wasn't um, so far after Watergate that we were. And uh, the director said, well, that's absolutely wrong. Macbeth isn't that man who you wouldn't buy a used car from. Macbeth is John F. Kennedy, the golden boy, oh. the man with the wonderful wife, the civilised people, people that ev surrounded by the beautiful people, the people who run a marvellous court, who you long to go and spend the weekend with. And what you don't expect when you go to the Kennedys, of course, is to wake up dead in the morning. And, and, and uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are like the Kennedys, only they went wrong. The Kennedys didn't go wrong, wow, as, far as, I know, as far as I know. But the, Macbeth yeah. clearly did, because they were very ambitious. And, and Macbeth was the Kennedy who <clears throat> became president through evil means. See, it's that added dimension. That's it, go a step further. Yeah, to say Nixon, yeah scheming, whatever you want to say there, to make it to get to the top, one Watergate or another. No, the golden boy mm. and the golden girl. That's right. The lady. And that, that's terrible. Who are all very ambitious. Yeah. And, 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 and rightly ambitious because yeah. uh, he's clearly a good man. He's a brilliant fighter. The play opens and every, people can't stop saying wonderful things about him. About and his like wife. That. And his wife, she's delightful. And that's, that was the simple starting point for our production, and we, we cottoned on to that, and Judy Dench, a very fine English uh, theatre actress, was... Uh, Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth, and uh, you can see the evidence on, on, on a, a TV version, which I know still goes around the States, and uh, uh, I wish it were on sale in the shops, because it's, um, I know everybody who sees it, it uh, realises that the production actually cottoned on to something. Now, Coriolanus, or Coriolanus, as uh, we call it in London, I've just finished doing. And if you think I'm looking old this morning, you should see me the day morning after doing Coriolanus. Very energetic part. There's lots of fighting, you know, and running up and down the scenery. Um, who is Coriolanus, you see? Mm. Very difficult. Who is the modern man who I can just latch on to? Uh, Coriolanus is a privileged man, comes from a, a patrician background where things are expected of one, and is clearly sent to the right school and protected from the realities of the world. And this um, has turned him into a brilliant, uh, brilliant fighter. But fighting, I guess, is rather a lonely job. Uh, it doesn't fit one particularly to be involved in, uh, in, in, in politics, say, which is where we find Coriolanus at the beginning of the play, just about to leave the world he knows terribly well to become a politician. 
But what is it that makes this man who seems to despise everybody want to be involved in society at all? Uh, I thought of uh, John McEnroe, <laughs> who earns his, li <laughs> earns his living, you know, as a great athlete. He doesn't kill people, he slaughters them, or did at the time when we were rehearsing at Coriolanus. He appears in public in front of thousands of people, clearly enjoys that, but he despises the people he's entertaining. And, and that's, that's, that's rather like Coriolanus. He wants to be up there, he wants to be the star, but there's something in him which says, uh, I hate you all for making me a star, because if I'm a real star, I don't need your approval, because I know how good I am. And I, I think that's r behind all McEnroe's outbursts. I think I'd just sit him down in a chair. I could put him right well, in five you, minutes. You do. Here's the originality. <laughs> Here comes the, the, the stunning originality of Ian McKellen, the performer and the creative spirit. Coriolanus, you don't think of a tennis actor, the one they call the brat. You don't think of that. You think of, well, <clears throat> was it Eisenhower? No. Warrior? No, Eisenhower's too kind, too gentle, and would trim his sails, whereas Coriolanus never trimmed. But warrior, you see, instead of thinking conventional terms, and that's mm. where the, where Macbeth and the Ken and Lady Macbeth and the Kennedys come into play. Here, out of nowhere, you open yeah. a door yeah. that no one thought of opening. You've got, you've, got to be, you've got to be careful with that, because it doesn't mean that I... I yeah. Uh, um, we reduced the play to the story of John McEnroe yeah. because uh, clearly that would be a libel on, on, on okay. him and on Coriolanus. Lenz. It was just a little aid for, for, for me, the actor, to just make the leap of imagination and say, well, McEnroe you exists, said, therefore Coriolanus exists. You said leap of imagination, and that's the word, leap of imagination also to make it contemporary without saying in modern dress. You don't need no, no, no. Contemporary in that these characters, Shakespeare, are forever mm. and ever mm. contemporary, mm. is they the are. point, too. They are. They are. And e each generation of um, actors and audiences see the play very differently. Uh, uh, you know, Coriolanus can be, and has been, played as a, as a right-wing play, pro-fascist pro, uh, attitude. Indeed, it can be played as a... Uh, as a left-wing play, and uh, Brecht, in fact, um, wrote his own version of Coriolanus to prove that it was a left-wing play. Um, our version in London was um, directed by Peter Hall, who's very middle of the road in, in, in many things, including his politics, and he insisted on seeing it as an SDP play, and uh, I should explain... Quite an SDP. Yes, the explain. Social Democratic Party of Britain has come into being as midway between Labour and Tory. And, uh, well, that's a long story, but that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, but um, as, as each generation goes by, different things become uh, of interest, and uh, it would be intolerable, wouldn't it, in, in, uh, in the 1980s or indeed the 20th century at all to present Coriolanus without giving the, the tribunes, who are the, um, as it were, the, ele the elected representatives of the people, uh, if, if one didn't in the production give them pr proper airtime, you know, to express their point of view and to be taken seriously. And uh, in the past, I think those characters have been rather reduced and therefore the balance of the story between the patricians and the people, which is what the story is all about, has, has been slightly knocked off kilter See, by as that. As you, Ian McKellen, 
offering your interpretations, the various ones of Coriolanus, I thought of something because you've done it to me just now. I'm going to get in trouble. I, I, I imagine some political trouble by saying this. I think of Coriolanus at this moment as the opposite of Ronald Reagan. Let me, let me try to offer why. Coriolanus' pride, you know, not my kind of guy, he's the autocrat, the aristocrat pride. He will never play down to the public, to the lowest common denominator. He will never appeal to that which he thinks is meanest in humans, like racism here and there, or playing the bully towards smaller countries, or having contempt for those up against it. I named various attributes of someone who may be called a great communicator, you see. Now, therefore, we, we a great many, love him for that very reason. He appeals to our shadowy side, we'll never admit, but by God, he's avuncular and nice and charming and makes it creditable and acceptable and respectable. Whereas Coriolanus, with his rigidity and his pride, is precisely the opposite. Mm. So there's another view. Very interesting. And uh, that's why... Um that's why Coriolanus has to has to die because uh, society cannot tolerate somebody who speaks the truth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not all the time, you know, and in the position of power. And his mother, who's a wise old bird, and has brought brought Coriolanus up to be um, the man he is, and has spoilt him outrageously, says, "Darling, you've only got to just pretend, just yeah. pretend, yeah. just bow the head occasionally." The mother wanted him, she's gentle and kind, and she wanted him to just compromise, well, what he felt was compromise, That's to right. go through the amenities. That's right. But, I mean, where, 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 where in politics you compromise and when you tell the truth, yeah. I mean, to, to, keep, to keep your standards of morality and, in, and be certain that you go to heaven at the end of a political career, I don't know how you do it in this country or in any other country. Yeah. Ian McKellen, and just simply... For the moment, reflecting on the various characters, this is in the one-man program, but also in doing Coriolanus, for which he won all sorts of awards, and doing Macbeth. And let's resume, after Mel Zumman's message, more of Ian McKellen and insights. And the guest is Ian McKellen. And this by way of reminding the audience that right now the, the National Theatre, how does that work? It's your unit. You and your colleague, Edward Petherbridge, ahead yeah. this a group of actors that are part of the National Theatre Group. Yes, we, we, there are 17 of us, and uh, we've been working together on these three plays, which we brought to Chicago for the last year. And within the National Theatre, there are other groups uh, doing their, their own programs and, uh, and shows, altogether four or five groups. And uh, it's, it's like, rather like... Um, a shopping mall with, 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 with five shops in it, and, and our shop is McKellen Petherbridge. Well, as the audience gathers, those who are fortunate enough to see the, the plays, the ensemble acting is incredibly good and powerful. And as Ian McKellen says, it's the stunning aspect, well, I say it's stunning aspect of the improvisatory feel that's happening at this moment. The Cherry Orchard, and then it'll be followed, this is from another week the cherry orchard yes we, we played this through sunday and then uh next wednesday we we start the, the beginning of the hand. end and for and for two weeks we, we do um two shows on the same in the same performance uh, a tom stoppard play the real inspector hand which is a sort of spoof about agatha christie type thrillers very funny indeed and a little bit sinister and uh, then 
that wonderful burlesque from the 18th century, Sheridan's The Critic, which is about okay. a, a rehearsal of an extremely bad play in which everything goes wrong. So we, we end up with a sort of British pantomime, really. Yeah. And that's so... Why when you say British pantomime? You have you ever seen that. one? No, I missed it. Uh, Eleanor Brown, I know, way back, invited yes. me to a pantomime, and I missed it, a Christmas pantomime. Explain the British <sighs> pantomime, because it's part of a tradition, I know, a ritual. Yes. It's, uh, it's based in um, a British music hall, Variety, or vaude Vaudeville. Uh, and um, it, they happen at Christmas time, during the Christmas vacations, based, based on some simple fairy story, Cinderella, let's say. Um, a group of Variety artists come together and tell the story in their own way. And in a tradition which began, I suppose, way back with Commedia dell'arte from Italy, but uh, strongly changed, amended, and influenced by the 19th century uh, solo performers. Uh, Cinderella is played by the young ingenue, of course. Um, Prince Charming is always played by another young lady. Very exciting to mm. see a young lady in tights and mm. um, flattened bosom and hair up in a bunch at the back. The Cinderella's... The Carabino, played by an act, uh, a that's singer. Right. That's yeah. right. Uh, the, the Ugly Sisters are both played by men. So everyone's in travesty. Uh, and, but this allows um, all sorts of titula titillation and, and vulgarity to happen uh, around the very simple, beautiful story of Cinderella, which is told through song and poetry and uh, broad gags. Uh, and uh, it's, it's the show that you take the whole family to. And talking to Ted Petherbridge last night in the dressing room, uh, if it hadn't been for the local pantomime he used to see in the north of England, he wouldn't be running a company at the National Theatre today. I mean, that's how most of us yeah. start off uh, in the theatre. We go to our first pantomime at five and we cannot believe yeah. our eyes because it's usually, there's usually a great deal of spectacle. So the kids during Christmas time are taken to pantomime mm -hmm. and here's everything. There's everything. humor, there's comedy, there's slapstick, Absolutely. there's burlesque. It's, it's frightening often. There's, there's, there's good and bad. There's the fairy queen and there's the... the um, Punch and Judy idea. Punch too. and Judy and there's usually a, a wicked fairy and they yeah. take either side yeah. of the stage and you're encouraged yeah, to too. boo and hiss and so cheer. There's a, so there's a uh, a touch of this in the double header, in uh, the well, in the critic and uh, I, I, I hope hopefully we just mine that the the, the same uh, deep uh, resources of, of the British character, which is to actually let its hair down. You know, I mean, you don't think of the British really like that, but uh, uh, we, we we can on occasion, even without the aid of alcohol, uh, suddenly go a little bit dotty and wild and. Uh, Utterly uh, joyful and effervescent, and hopefully that, that's the spirit we we That'll be the last one of the three evenings yeah. of theatre. And Sheila Hancock <coughs> is playing the chariot, and Madame Rinyovskaya yes. is directing. Yes, she's critic. she's a really uh, quite a girl. She's uh, she's very well known in England for for TV um, comedy series that she's been doing uh, throughout the years. Uh, in the West End of London, she's uh, played the lead in uh, in Annie musical and in um, sometimes uh, Sweeney Todd. No. She's played on Broadway. Now you in the, in the two one act plays are doing. You don't something. want me to talk about Sheila Hancock. Oh, I, I'm devoted to Sheila. Talk no, more about no, Sheila Hancock. Right. No, she's just the salt of the salt of the British theatre. 
that reduces her because she has so many other interests as well. She 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 runs a family and um, she's interested in the all sorts of um, um, Greenpeace movements and the women who go down to Greenham Common outside the American Air Base. She goes down on Sundays and takes some things she's cooked and gives them a bit of a drink and she comes racing back to rehearsals and she directs and acts and sings and uh, those are the sort of people heralded by the uh, press or not, it doesn't matter, uh, who are the very basis of, of, of what's good about British The women theater. at Greenham Commons are still there. They certainly are, yes. I've never been there, but uh, they, they just keep reminding everybody. do go there to help, a number of them oh, do yes, go to, yes, to lend yes, them encouragement. They do. Yes. Uh, What's people's perception of that in the, in the States? Not much. Here, uh, well, let's, let's not go into that. Here. All right. Not much. There's a perception that's a little uh, patronizing, one-sided, not much as should be to very gallant women who are on the side of sanity <laughs> in a nutty time, let's face it, <laughs> a nutty time. That's, I suppose that's another, if I could, this is like I'm maybe stretching a point, but Shakespeare, the plays you do, also lend a note of not simply reflection, but some sanity or balance, do they? A good play that is expertly done in a time that is goofed up. Mm. Is that stretching the point? Well, I don't know. I, I, the, the, the miracle of Shakespeare is, is, is the breadth of his humanity. Uh, and... Um, that must always be uh, an encouragement uh, rather than a salve on, on, on troubled minds in the audience. I, I, I just think you ought to come out of a Shakespeare play feeling uplifted and optimistic, even if it's been a tragedy, in that the story has been told. Uh, usually there is some resolution at the end of the play which looks forward to the future. Uh, you're not. Shakespeare doesn't encourage you just to wallow in the depressed, the the, the, the um, pessimistic nature of some of the stories. But I feel optimistic at the end of a Shakespeare play because I think, my God, there once was a man, William, who knew it all. <laughs> and if he could encompass it in his mind, it being what we are as people, because we've not changed that much since Shakespeare's time. I don't think we've changed at all. But the human beings do change inside. Um, well, then perhaps God exists. Yeah. If a man could yeah. get it together. If he lived. And, and we yeah. do have the chance yeah. by reading the plays and seeing them just to find out a bit more about ourselves. And the more we know about ourselves, the, the kinder we're going to be to each other. If this guy could see that much, the insight, the understanding, the humanity, mm. uh, the humor, the, all rolled into one, that means that what a work as man, whatever is Prospero says. That's right, that's right. Yeah, what is something work as man? You're going to ask me to quote, what no. a piece of work is what a man. What a piece of work is man. Yes, Hamlet. Mm. Oh, well, that's Hamlet? Yeah. Oh, what did Prospero say at the end there? Awful lot of things. Yeah, I know, what the one th about that world he envisioned. I don't want, this is unfair. Um, it's, it's a quarter of it. Ah, oh, yes, our revels now are ended. Yeah. Uh, these are actors, as I foretold you, are vanished into air into thin air, and like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself 
yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. I sometimes think that that's a description of the end of the world, you know, when, imagine a great city like Chicago, gorgeous palaces, solemn temple, great globe itself, the name of Shakespeare's theatre, of course, as well as the concept of the world, shall dissolve, melt down. As down. The, you know, leave not a rack behind, nothing left. Uh, and yet out of that concept, he, Shakespeare, uh, takes hope. We are such stuff as dreams are made on. And here's a promise, our little life, it is only a little life, is rounded with a sleep, you know. And there's, there's, you may have sweet dreams in that sleep, you know. Wonderful. And that's, a, that's an old man who says every third thought will be his grave. Uh, and perhaps it was Shakespeare's farewell to, farewell to the theatre that... Um, yeah. Just as you say that, and you said even though you see a tragedy, there's a feeling of exhilaration, and we are such, such stuff as dreams are made of. The human species, though, there may be a meltdown, but if saying there won't be. Harold Clurman, who was the... Mm. Uh, group Harold was a critic, also director of the group theater for years, marvelous critic, was saying, every time I see Lear, that is a good production of Lear, I walk out accelerated. Yes, yes. Here's the tragedy, bleak seemingly in every way, and yet he walks out accelerated, is what you're talking about. Yes. It's, um, tragedy is a, a badly used word when it comes to the newspapers. Um, stories of, of horrible things that happen to human beings are not necessarily tragedies. I think tragedy perhaps should be reserved as a technical term, uh, referring to uh, uh, some piece of fiction, and preferably one for the stage, where the audience's reaction is bound to be complicated and, and to understand that uh, the terrible things that happen to human beings and the terrible things that we do to each other are perhaps then built into our nature, but some good can be rescued from them. And, and when you read the papers, you don't always feel that, do you? Um, but, I mean, Shakespeare was talking about human relations. He wasn't talking, uh, well, I think in the end everything is redeemable and everything can be changed. Uh, you know, everyone can grow up and improve. I'm, I'm a socialist to that extent that I, I believe... Uh, we, 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 a person can end up, when he dies, a better person than he was when he was a spoiled brat. But when one gets, thinks of the wicked and terrible things which are done between nations, then, I mean, it is just appalling. And I don't think even Shakespeare quite encompassed those problems. I mean, I think he was basically talking about human relationships and certainly men in society, but I, I, don't, I can't really think of, a, of an analogy for the 
what our great politicians get up to these days and the way they totally rule the future of the world. I think yeah. I think that hadn't quite occurred to Shakespeare. <laughs> Ian, just as, you, as you're speaking of Shakespeare and nations, that perhaps he hadn't thought about that when the whole idea of nationalism and nationhood was coming into being and empires and a new world and new uh, resources and new wealth. Einstein, I don't know why I associate Einstein and Shakespeare, but I do, but Einstein, before he died, was saying, mm. the very thing you're talking about, nationalism has to, in some manner or another, go. And I know the idea of one world seems idealistic and utopian and remote and removed, but you probably want, the thing he most was terrified of was martial music and national flags. Mm. And it's the border boundary line. Now we have a crazy accident, a horrendous accident happened, in the Ukraine. Yeah. Now, that radiation spanned all sorts of national boundaries. It makes no sense. This is Einstein's point. Since he's involved in that, he's a Greek hero, someone said, guilty and innocent. It was his equation that resulted in the, in the bomb and the split atom. And he says, this has changed the whole world. It's my, his discovery, little dreaming of used as destructive. He meant it precisely the opposite. But it's his, he says, this split atom must change the way man thinks. Mm -hmm. it, it has altered every aspect of our lives except the way we think about nations. Unless we do think anew, catastrophe. But studs, I mean, that, do, do, do you, out of the, the world reaction to, to, to that terrible accident in uh, Kiev, I, I, are you optimistic or, or pessimistic? I, it seems to me, you tell me if I'm, if you see it differently, but the, um, the state, the reaction of the Russian state, don't worry, under control, not as serious as you think, it'll all be all right, um, little bit of evacuation, but everyone's back at school now, don't drink the milk for a couple of years, fine. Isn't far removed from the reaction I've seen from uh, American uh, nuclear people say, oh, by the time it comes over here, the cloud we expect won't have any force You're right to on the it. button. Absolutely. Aren't they, aren't they speaking with the same voice Absolutely. as the people who built the reactor? Absolutely. You're so right what, on the so button. What, so this what's, is, what's this the is, difference between Russia and America? None. That's precisely the point. I mean, uh, big utilities here and uh, the Russian bureaucrats saying precisely the same thing. That's what Einstein was talking about. That's, you hit it so right where on do, the where button. Where does that this leave us? Where does that leave us, you see? Yeah. No, well, I suppose it leaves... Optimistic or pessimistic, there was an old drunk before the bar, you know, and uh, he's pretty <laughs> drunk. He's pretty guilty or not guilty. His eye stands mute, you know, and so I stands mute at the... Yes. Whoa, uh, several years ago, I was very optimistic. Several years ago, hmm. slightly put it mildly, slightly less now. But this always, this always comes back to Shakespeare and his understanding of the human heart, doesn't it? And ambition and pride and venality. But the thing that's added is the power or whatever is the horror of nationhood. Mm. Nationhood, by the way, is a funny word. You know, hood or hood is short for hoodlum, too. Indeed. A hood, we say, well, in Chicago we say hood. In New York they say hood. It's short for hoodlum, so we say hoodlum. nationhood. I start thinking, hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> I, we, let's a slight pause. Uh, one more break for, for Mel Zellman. They've got to resume for the last lap with Ian McKellen. 
actor, director, too. All sorts of challenges after this message. Back with Ian McKellen, I should point out that he had a couple of hours sleep on his hair. I'd say it's not a bad analysis, but for a couple of hours sleep. Ian McKellen has been called also perhaps the most accomplished stunning actor on the speaking stage today uh, as successor to Olivier, which leads to an interesting question and challenge. The double header you're in, the critic and and the real inspector hound of Tom Stoppard, uh, you play two different roles. Hold it. Olivier was in the critic and Oedipus and played right. two different yes. roles. Well, uh, the difference between those two uh, double headers, you call them, uh, is um, is the difference between the company that Laurence Olivier was in at the time and the one that I'm in now. Uh, I saw him the other day um, uh, in the country where he lives, still working, ever so often making movies. Um, and I asked him about um, the critic, which he'd done, I think, in the uh, late 30s. Now. Oh, he said, we, I, I, was, I was going to do Oedipus and um, I just wanted some outrageous contrast with it to just impress the audience. He said it was a one-man show virtually and the other actors never really forgave me because I behaved outrageously in both plays. And, um, well, it worked because we remember, don't we, that uh, he, want, he once did those two plays in Harness and was a, you know, had a stunning success. He transformed himself physically uh, in, in the intermission. Whereas I'm working um, uh, with with a group of people who would uh, wouldn't let me get away with it, you know. And uh, I'm not I'm not running a one man show this occasion. It's a, it's a company, and uh, the part I play in Reinspector Hound is is uh, I think the smallest part in that play. I play Mr. Puff, which is the largest in that one. But that's how we try to share things out in our, our group. So really, the, it's the group that's on show in, in in my case. But what a man, Lawrence Olivier. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, and you, I suppose, different approaches to acting, to classic theatre, the different approaches. So Olivier, I'll name three, just what you say, differences. And this is an elementary question. Olivier Gilgood Richardson, three you know, actors who are up there. Uh, yet, let's say, once upon a time, they may have done a similar, similar roles, once upon a time. Or Richardson, more of a character. I don't know if Richardson ever did. Hamlet probably never did. Maybe, maybe young Richardson. Who, who? Richardson? No, I no. don't think so, no. But anyway, in any event, the different approaches. There's a casual one, more casual, seemingly Richardson. It's quite interesting. Um, why, don't you, why, don't, why don't you? Um, I don't think there are many plays that those particular three actors did all play. They all played Macbeth, and uh, Richardson's Macbeth was a total flop, total failure. Um, Olivier was a big success, and I'm not sure about uh, Gilgood. What else have they all played? They didn't play Hamlet. Lear. No, Richardson never played Lear, and why not? He would have, should have. He would have yeah. been, been a wonderful Lear. Well, they ended up in in in, in the later life. Richardson's dead now, of course, and Sir Lawrence doesn't work very much. John Gilgood, you can't keep him down. You mm. know? Try and call him up. He's never at home. He's always off filming somewhere else. Um, but the public perception of them now is, is of uh, Ralph Richardson, the the eccentric 
character man who somehow he illuminates uh, each character he plays by bringing it very much into himself. It's always firmly Ralph Richardson there with the distinctive voice and... Uh, uh, I've, I, found, I found him very impressive on stage when I first saw him in a not considerable play by Graham Greene. He was, he was acting with young Paul Schofield at the time. I don't, Complacent Lover, it was called, and I don't remember much about it except that I know the, the husband that Ralph Richardson plays uh, betrayed his wife in the course of the play. Uh, and he went up to him and, uh, in a rather empty gesture of... Um, comfort for this wife he'd betrayed, he put his arm around her. And the actress uh, walked away from him and Sir Ralph left his arm up. So there was an empty space where there had just been a wife and in that simple gesture he had uh, summed up the whole relationship. Wow. One hardly needed words and, and he seemed to me to the man who could just effortlessly land on in an unexpected way, yeah. on something which was visually or vocally or, Boy, or that's emotionally absolutely yeah. right. Now, that's, that's a revelation. Mm. That reminds me of one thing, and then one last comment of Ian McKellen. Arthur Miller, you know, they did the book Death of a Salesman in Peking. That's right. And he once saw actors before that, and the woman is telling the man a terrible story, a tragic tale, and enough to make the man weep. That is, in Western theater, the man would weep. This guy stood and did a complete somersault upside down or standing still. You know, he was turned upside down yes. psychically, but he did it physically yes. without moving any, without an expression on his face. And he said it was absolutely stunning. Yes. And so Richardson yes. holding that arm out to empty yes. space did yes. what the Chinese yes. actor did. Yes, there's no, there's, in theatre, there is no limit to what yeah. you can do. You can be absolutely dead naturalistic. Yeah. The audience yeah. can believe that yeah. what they're seeing is actually somehow happening in front of their eyes, that these people actually exist. They're not actors. It can be that degree of reality. Yeah. And it can be a ballet. You know, it's all, and it's all theatre. This is by way of thanking Ian McKellen, first of all, for coming down this crazy hour in the morning for an actor who's in a classic and acting is arduous, no matter what. Effortless, by the way, the effortlessness of, of uh, McKellen is his own. It's Richardson, but it's his own. And being part of this company, Cherry Orchard, there's a matinee today at 2 at the Blackstone Theater, and tonight, Cherry Orchard, and forthcoming will be the double bill. And it's, it's an experience, of course, and a very exhilarating one to see uh, a theater as expert excellent as the this particular group of the National Theatre of Great Britain. And a word before we say goodbye for now, till I see you tonight at the theatre. Any uh, passing word? I, I, I'd just like to say what I thought we might have been talking about, but then I got around to it, is that uh, one of the great joys of coming to Chicago and, and being in a festival is that I've met so many people working in local theatre. Uh, and I hope to go and meet them during the course of the next... Uh, two and a half weeks, and discovering what l life's like being an actor in Chicago. And actually, that's the way you get to know a town. I mean, wonderful, wonderful buildings here, and I travel here, there, and everywhere. But actually, meeting the people, discovering what it would be like if I were living here. Uh, I've, I think I'm getting closer to the heart of Chicago, and I really like what I see. <laughs> And, and the people I meet, and, and the spirit of these of these uh, kids. They're all kids at heart, you know. They're not losing. The, they're pioneers. And I just pray, and I, I keep saying to them, please go on. When you're successful, 
when they want you in movies, go and do them, and like Malkovich and Bill Peterson, come back to Chicago and go on being a pioneer when you're, you're 60, and then the government will have to turn around and give you some money so that more kids can come up. And hey, that's our next subject, <laughs> question of government subsidy for the arts. That's a <coughs> this is by way of thanking Ian McKellen very much indeed. Thank you. Once again, hail, farewell. And tomorrow, Utah Phillips in town, Bruce Phillips, singer of all sorts of labor songs in American history, a little-known history in those songs he sings. He's at, uh, Hel he's at uh, Ed Holstein's. Till tomorrow, then, with Utah's guest, we say take it easy, but take it. <laughs>